wonder if you've ever thought, I think that God has forgotten me. Or perhaps you've thought, I think God doesn't care about me. Or if you thought, I, I wonder if perhaps in this situation, God simply doesn't have the power that's needed for the circumstances. The circumstances of our lives can easily make us wonder about that. And this morning we'll see God's people in circumstances in which they certainly wondered those things. Has our God forgotten us? Does he care? Or maybe sadly, perhaps, he's just not powerful enough. So if you have a Bible today, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Today we'll be in 1 Samuel 5, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 228, page 228. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, so you can follow along as we work our way through this passage this morning. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we'll be in, start in chapter 5. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'll mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room is a table. There's a sign there that says free Bibles. Please grab one of those and take it with you this morning. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And last week we watched as the Israelites, God's people, found themselves facing a battle against a neighboring nation, the Philistines. And this first battle was fought, the Israelites lost in this dramatic, substantial defeat. And so in their desperation, uh, some of the people said, what we should do is we should bring the ark of God, this box, this chest that God had ordained that his people would build, uh, that would be, be used to, to hold the, the, the tablets of the covenant, that would be a place in the tabernacle, in, in this place in the tabernacle where God had chosen to uniquely dwell among his people. And though he had never commanded them or given them permission to take it into battle like this, that's what they decided they would do. But they felt like things were desperate enough, and, and perhaps if we take the ark with us, God will be forced to lead us into victory. And initially, when the ark was brought in, the Israelites were emboldened. They, they were encouraged. They were joyful. They thought, surely this will help us. And, and the neighboring forces, the Philistines, when they heard of this, they were fearful that a God had come into the camp. So it looked like perhaps the momentum had shifted, but the battle was fought. The Israelites lost a devastating de defeat. Two of the wicked priests, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died as a judgment upon them, as we'd seen pro prophesied in previous chapters. And the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. It was taken away. Last week, at the end of chapter 4, we saw just a devastating picture of mourning across Israel. The priests were dead. Their dad, Eli, died in response to the news. And the ark was gone. That's where we pick up the text this morning, 1 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. 
only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it'll be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. They said, what is this guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away, and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of God, of the Lord, and the box that was beside it, 
in which there were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors of the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. The people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away with it? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this week, if you got nothing else done, you could say you listened to two entire chapters of the Bible and you made it through. That was a long one. And this morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Keep trusting only in your powerful, self-sufficient, saving God. Keep trusting only in your powerful, self-sufficient, saving God. And we'll look at our passage just in these two scenes. First, we'll see exile, and then second, we'll see return. So exile and return. So first, we see exile in chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 1. As the scene shifts from Shiloh, where we were in chapter 4, to the region of the Philistines, And we see in verse 1 that they brought the ark of God, the ark of Yahweh, who's the covenant God of Israel, to the town of Ashdod. And we're told they brought the ark into the house of Dagon. Dagon was one of the Philistines' gods. So he had a temple-like house where the idol, the statue of Dagon was. So they brought in the ark of God and placed it near Dagon. So the ark of God was being viewed as as some form of a spoil of war. The victor takes the spoils. This was a trophy. They defeated the Israelites, and and with that, their God as well. So they placed the, the ark there, demonstrating that they had defeated the Israelites, and they believed their gods as well. But also perhaps as they often thought in that day that they're, they're happy to add other gods to their collection if somehow perhaps that god could add some blessing as well. So they've conquered the god of this ark, but also maybe this god could be of help. We see verse 3, the next morning someone goes in, and they find that Dagon has fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So Dagon was a statue, and he's fallen, but notice he's not simply fallen, but he's fallen face down. And not just face down in any direction, but face down towards the ark, as if bowing before or worshiping someone, worshiping someone who is a superior. Dagon, by this example, was humiliated. But they came and they took Dagon, they put him back in its place, for their God had fallen and he couldn't get up on his own, so they, they set him back up. And as you read this story, there's some humor in it. 
And it's intended to be humorous as we read this, of this God who can't even get up off the ground. But it's not intended to be sort of pointless humor, but it's humor that's just to, to press on and to remind us of the futility of worshiping idols. The folly of worshiping an idol that is made with human hands. So they set Dagon back up, but then the next morning we see verse 4. They go back in, and what do they find now? The Dagon has fallen again, face downward before the ark. But not only that, the head of Dagon has been cut off, as well as his hands. Only his trunk remains. This was utter humiliation. A crushing defeat for Dagon. The Philistines' God here defeated. Of course, the practice of setting up gods, idols of our own making, was not unique to the Philistines. All people everywhere worship something or someone. We may not use the term worship, but we give our loyalty, our allegiance to someone or something. And very often we erect idols very commonly adopting the idols of any given culture or society that we may live upon or, or creating our own. And for you may or may not have a visible representation. You may or may not have a statue, big or small. But I would guess deep down there is something or someone that you give your hope, your allegiance, your trust to. And an idol can be anything, it might even be something that's good that we look to to make us whole, that we look to to perhaps give us significance or meaning, or that functionally we look to to save us in some way. Some of the common idols of our city would be achievement, whether it be in education or in work or so many other areas, that, that we seek to find ourselves, to be someone, to find meaning, lasting significance through that or through the accumulation of material possessions or wealth, that that will functionally save me. Or sometimes we, we try to find it through relationships or through sex, and, and the list goes on of so many ways that we may look to something or someone, even sometimes gifts of God that we make ultimate in our lives. We set these idols up, and when things are going well, the idol may seem to be working. We might find significant enjoyment for a time by trusting in this idol. But in time, no idol can ultimately do for us what we're asking it to do. It can't ultimately save. It can't give us lasting significance and meaning. And so, uh, so often our idols get knocked down by the challenges of life. But because it's no God of its own, we have to set it back up as we find any number of ways to justify and to reshuffle the idols of our hearts and minds. But we do set them back up because we can't imagine life without this idol. What would life be like without success? What would life be like without perceived achievement? What would life be like without a relationship to make me whole? Friends, Jesus calls us away from idols, away from trusting in anything other than him. 
So it's a good and wise practice for the Christian to be regularly seeking to identify and discern where, where there might be something in our life that we're trusting in functionally more than God that's become to us an idol. And so we repent of that. And, and the discerning Christian is always seeking to root those out. And sometimes when we persist in idolatry out of love and grace, our gracious Heavenly Father may knock down our idols for us. And it is painful when our idols are toppled over. Devastating. Sometimes we wonder, does life even matter? We may even think God is cruel because our idol has been toppled. And yet, it is for our good if God is displacing something that can't truly save us that we might look to him and him alone. So friend, I wonder, what, what do you have in your life that either is an idol or that you're aware could easily become an idol? And that's the difficulty, isn't it, that achievement is not bad, necessarily. Wealth is not bad, necessarily. Relationships are a gift from God and can be a source of so much good, and yet we can take those things and so many others and make them ultimate. Ultimately, not finding the meaning we need and then crushing those very things. As we see in verse 4, we see that Dagon's hands were cut off. And you'd like to notice, as you heard me reading, there was a repeated phrase starting in verse 16. And this was, the hand of the Lord. So Dagon's hands are cut off, but then again and again and again, we see, we hear the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. And friends, this is no coincidence. For the author is making a point here that the one, this one God, Dagon, he has no hands. The God of Israel, Yahweh, has powerful hands. We see verse 6, that the people are afflicted by tumors from the hand of the Lord. And in response, the people ask, look at verse 8, they say, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? So notice, they've connected the dots. The ark has been brought in. They either saw or heard about what happened to Dagon. They're aware of all these tumors breaking out. And they're putting this together to say, this only happened when the ark came in. This must be caused by the God of this so they get together with what are called the lords, which are the, the kings of these five cities. And the Philistines had five main cities. Each of them had a leader, a king, or a lord. So they come together. They decide, verse 8, well, let's move it from Ashdod to Gath. But when it arrives in Gath, the same thing happens. The hand was heavy there as well. More tumors, more panic. So verse 10, they say, well, we'll send the, to the city of Ekron. The people of Ekron appropriately say, don't bring it here. It's like a cruel game of hot potato. They're like, look, we didn't ask for it. We don't want it. Please don't send it here. We see verse 11, that again, the lords of the cities gather together and they say, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill our people. We see in chapter six, verse one, the ark was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So for seven months, there's a, there was this ongoing upheaval and panic. Now, when Israel had been defeated in chapter 4, the ark of God was taken away. And it looked like 
Certainly Israel had been defeated, but also that their God had been defeated. Everyone would have read it that way. This item, the ark was with them, and they lost. But had he? Israel had certainly been defeated, but, but had Yahweh, had their God also been defeated? Now, often in those days, as we often see in the Old Testament, when a nation was defeated, their people would be taken away into exile. The winner would relocate people, often enslaving them, bringing them back to serve them. But that's not what happens here in this text. The Israelites are defeated, but they were not taken into exile, but someone was. The ark of God was taken into exile. We saw last week, chapter 4, verse 22, if you want to look there, the, the words can equally well be translated, chapter 4, verse 22, the glory has gone into exile, for the ark of God has been captured. So here, Yahweh, the Lord, goes into exile instead of his people. He goes into exile, we could say, for his people. Now, he appeared to have been defeated, humiliated, powerless. But as we see what actually happens in Philistia, something else was playing out. For the ark of the Lord in Philistia is there conquering their God on his own territory. He goes into the Philistines, and there overcomes, humiliates Dagon. And there the hand of the Lord afflicts the people. And then the ark of the Lord is, is taken on a tour around the cities, almost like a victory tour. The God who apparently had been defeated goes from place to place, and they're like, get it out of here. Austin, we know well over the years, many parades for victorious teams. These, these boat tours of, of whether it was the, the Celtics or the Patriots, and the list has gone on of all the different championships that the, the, the winners parade around. And here we see this defeated God paraded and yet conquering as he goes. In every city, they say, please get this out of here. So here, God went into exile for his people in the place of his people. And there he goes and triumphs over his enemies. Friends, this is a pointer, a preview of the coming of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, God the Son came into this rebellious world. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He came to the midst of many who were enemies opposed to him. And Jesus did not fight back. He could have. He chose not to. He didn't fight his enemies, but he surrendered to them. And then he goes right into the punishment, the cross, that we deserve. Not that he deserved, for he didn't. He was a sinless son of God, but, but he goes into the punishment that you and I deserve because of our rebellion. He endured that punishment on the cross in our place. He took the plague, the punishment that you and I deserve. He then goes into death, the death we deserve. And as Jesus hung on the cross, it looked like God had been defeated, that Jesus had lost, that Jesus was powerless. But he was at work powerfully defeating through his sacrificial death and through his resurrection, defeating Satan, sin, and death. So friends, Jesus, out of great love, came to die to rescue rebels, sinners like us. 
The Apostle Paul writes of that this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses, at the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Christ comes into this world and he triumphs over the enemies, overpowers the enemies. It looks like Christ is powerless, but of course, he is ultimately infinitely powerful. If you're not a Christian, we would love for you to know this Savior, Jesus Christ, who is no distant God, who stays away and says, if you clean yourself up, you can know me. He's no powerless statue who we, with our hands, have to set up. We, we have no statues here. He's a glorious king who came here, chose to allow himself to suffer in our place, to provide a free gift of salvation to any and all who'd receive it by faith. And so if you're new to this, we'd love for you to explore this with us in the coming weeks. If you'd like to know more, you can note that on the Connect card, or I'll be at the door. I would love to chat with you. Or if you came with a friend or family member and they're a Christian, I'm certain they would love to tell you more. So we're told in the text that for seven months, the ark was in Philistia. During those seven months, Israel was mourning. So we at the vantage point, we see chapter four, what happens in Shiloh in Israel. Chapter five, then, then our attention moves to the cities of the Philistines. The people of Israel have no idea what's happening for those seven months. They're mourning, despairing. The ark is gone. In essence, God is gone. Where is our God? He's been taken from us. His ark is no longer with us. Has their God forgotten them? Had their God forsaken them? Or perhaps finally their God was not strong enough. Of course, they didn't realize that their God was over there winning battles, defeating foreign gods. So from their vantage point, their God was silent. Their God was absent. Perhaps their God was powerless. But in reality, their God was among the Philistines, overcoming foreign gods, displaying his glory, all by his power. And friends, that continues today. So often the circumstances in our lives make us think, or at least make us wonder, has God forgotten me? Does God care? Or perhaps in this circumstances in life, God's just not powerful enough to actually make a difference. Because it sure seems like nothing is happening. Where is God? Friend, let this remind us and encourage us. Friend, your God is always at work. So often it's not obvious to us. It can't be seen by us. But he's at work, always at work. And friends, the cross of Jesus forever promises that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. So, so no matter what circumstances seem to say, no matter how dark the valley you find yourself in, it can't be that God 
has forgotten you. It can't be that God doesn't love you, for that is forever, eternally answered through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So friend, keep trusting him. Keep walking by faith, especially when circumstances seem to cause us to think that God is absent, that God has forgotten, that God simply is not powerful enough. So we see exile. And then second and more briefly, we see return, chapter 6, verse 2 through 7, 2. If you think about it, after all they've seen and experienced, the Philistines might have responded by saying, could the God of Israel actually be the true God? Because they've seen him humble their God. They've seen these people stricken with these tumors. Because if he really is the true God, that would have been a good thing for them to know. So they might have just paused things and said, let's, let's humble ourselves and let's discover if Dagon's not the true God, the God of Israel is, I'd want to know that. Perhaps they could have humbled themselves and reached out to some priests from the Israelites. Tell us more about your God. But they don't. Even though they've personally seen his power, they just want their old lives just want things to sort of stabilize. So the Philistines decide to, to send the ark back, but, but they need a plan. How do we do that? So they call their own priests and they say, tell us, if we're going to send this box back to Israel, how should we do so? Now the priests don't know for certain, but they suggest a plan. First they tell in verse 3, they say, don't send it back empty, but send with it a guilt offering. They tell them to send five golden tumors and five golden mice. Gold, of course, because of its great value. The tumors to represent these tumors that they have been stricken with. And the mice, which is more unclear, but many think that the, perhaps the, the plague sent upon them was the bubonic plague that was carried by mice. And that was the tool that God used. So maybe that's why they, they also make these mice. But either way, they understand these tumors and mice to be connected and significant. And they send five of them, one for each of the lords or the kings or the cities of Philistia. Friends, we should notice that they realize their guilt. That's what the priest calls it. You should send with it a guilt offering. Not just an offering, but a guilt offering. So they see these offerings as for their own guilt. They see these offerings as representing their cities, for they send five to represent the five cities. And they understand, they believe that these offerings are somehow ransoming themselves, paying for their guilt. We're guilty, send a payment for our guilt to remove our guilt. So they were not worshipers of God, of Yahweh, but they did have a sense of their own guilt. And friends, so do we. So do all people everywhere. In some measure, we understand ourselves to be guilty. And the world is filled with people trying to address that guilt in any number of ways. By the creation of spiritual paths or just the denial of this guilt or, or the renaming of it. But in some way, not all the time, but in some way we, we sense that something is awry. That we need to somehow make up for these mistakes or worse that we have done. 
And if you're not a Christian, I wonder how you've thought about that. Have you, have you at times sensed guilt? Now, it's certainly true that sometimes we, we feel misplaced guilt or shame that might be driven by family expectations or by culture. I, I don't mean that. But sometimes we feel guilt because we are, in fact, guilty. We have rejected the one true God. We have lived in continuing rebellion against him. The good news of Christianity is that it names our guilt and Christ has provided a way out of it as he took our guilt in our place. He endured the punishment, the judgment that we deserve so that through Christ we're no longer guilty but instead stunningly we are made righteous through Christ. And there is no longer any condemnation for the Christian. So the priests tell them, verse 5 of chapter 6, send the offerings and give glory to the God of Israel. Then they devise a specific way to send the ark back that would test if this really was of God. Because that would still be a question, right? Like, it did happen when the ark came, but is this really caused by the God of this ark? So they devise a plan that, that would, could only happen if something supernatural happens. So they say, one, you should build a cart. Second of all, get two milk cows who've never pulled a, a, a cart before. Now, I know we're not exactly, a, you know, agrarian community here at Hope Fellowship Church, but you have to, to trust me here. So, so one, there are some cattle who are trained to pull carts. These had not, so they'd never pulled a cart before. So if you latch them to a cart, they're going to go crazy. They're not going to go straight because they've never done it before. They've not been trained to do it. But even more than that, they say, take two milk cows who have calves, take their calves back home, and then have them pull in another direction. This too would be a test, because everything in the instincts of that milk cow would be to go to their calves. Physically, they would be drawn back to their calves, that their calves might uh, receive milk from them. So this would be another test. They've not pulled an ark, or they've not pulled a cart, and also... They're going to be drawn by their very instinct strongly back home to the cows. And they say, if these cows walk straight back to Israel, this must be from the Lord. It would have to be the Lord's hand. So they send the cart away. Notice verse 12. The cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh, along the highway, lowing as they went. So they calmly, peacefully, those who've never pulled a cart before walk, lowing as they went, back to Israel. So here, God had accommodated them in their interesting plan to discern if it's really from God. Now, God did not prescribe this nor commend it. And so if you need to make some big decisions this year, I don't suggest this. So it's going to be like, okay, what I need is I need some cows. I don't know where you get those in Cambridge. I need some cows and a cart. And if it goes this way, I go to grad school. If I go that way, I take the job. That's not what we should take from this. <laughs> but we should take from this, this was a plan they set up that in fact in such a domestic way is actually a supernatural act. For these cows went completely opposite from all of their instincts to calmly lead this cart back home. The leaders of the Philistines were told, watch it. And notice, they had set this up, and they had said, if it happens this way, we'll know it's the hand of God. 
So what might they have done that they've just seen this miracle happen? They might have now been convinced, wow, this must be the true God. We set up a test that only God could do. So God must be at work, the one true God, and yet they don't. They choose to ignore it and go home. They just want their old life back. So often people say, and maybe you've said this before, if I saw a miracle, then I'd believe. If I really saw a miracle, I would believe in God then. But for now, I would just say, don't be so sure that you would. For we can so easily rationalize away the hand of God. And that's what happens here. We see in verse 13, the cart came to the first Israelite town called Beth Shemesh. The people were there in the fields harvesting and they saw the cart coming and they rejoiced. Remember, they had been despairing at the loss of the cart and the cart has come home. Now, Beth Shemesh was one of the cities designated for Levites to live within. Levites were one of the, the, the one group among God's people who had been designated by God to lead God's people in right worship. So they were to care for the tabernacle. They were to care for the ark. So they knew what God's word had said about how to care for it. We see verse 15, that the Levites, who knew God's word, his instructions for handling the ark, they came and took down the ark. So they've been set apart and trained for this, but also mindful when we've seen Levites so far in 1 Samuel, we've seen corruption among them, Hophni and Phinehas and even Eli, or at the very least, just incompetence. So they do come, but will they know what to do? But after the celebration, we see the story takes a sharp, dark turn, verse 19. As we're told that men were struck down. And why? We're told because they looked upon the ark. That's not clear exactly what is meant by this. It seems very possibly it's because they looked into the ark. But no matter, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 instructed these Levites that the ark should have always been covered. It was never publicly seen. So these Levites should have known the ark is back. We should handle it appropriately. We should cover it up. At the very least, no one should ever look inside of it. Levites knew God's word and didn't follow it. So this judgment was no random judgment. It was in accordance with God's instructions. And so in response, we see the people of Beshemesh ask a question. Look at verse 20. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? It's a tremendously important question. Who is able to stand before the Lord? But the fact is, God had answered that question. At that time, a priest was necessary to go up before the Lord. And yet the Levites, God's people, didn't know God's word, or at least they didn't submit to God's word. And we see that here, the Israelites are no better, no wiser than the outsiders, the Philistines themselves. And they, like the Philistines, send the ark. The people of Beshemesh said, we want to get rid of the ark. And so they send it to a neighboring town called Kiriath-Jerim. And although this town is within Israel, it's historically, it was a predominantly Gentile city. And yet God allowed the ark to go there and remain there for a significant period of time. Just this light foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be for 
all the nations of the world. And here, here it's Reem, the people of God finally do what God had said. Notice they consecrate Eliezer to be, have charge over the ark and to serve in this priestly role. That's what the people in Beshemesh should have done. Here, there's this one to go before the people to the Lord. But that question they ask is an important question for us as well. The question, who is able to stand before the Lord? Are we able to stand before the Lord? Can anyone stand before the Lord, before the God of all creation? The fact is, on our own, we cannot. No one can. What? Because of Jesus Christ, everything has changed. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and following. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. So friends, how do we draw near? We draw near through Christ. We now have this access into fellowship with God, reconciled to God, forgiven of sins, even adopted into God's own family. Now we approach this God as our Father. What a glorious Savior we have. If you're a Christian, you have that access to God today. Christ paid for our sins. He provided this salvation. He has opened a way. So friend, you today have access. No matter where you go, you have access. Our God is never in exile from us. He is with us and in us by the Spirit. No matter where he may take you, no matter how low the depths or high the heights, he is with us in and through that. Friend, that is our saving God. And he is faithful. Even when circumstances say otherwise, he has not, he will not forget you. And he is powerful. Powerful to save and powerful to sustain. So let's trust him today. Let's trust him this week. Let's keep trusting, trusting only in 